in the early hours of morning, on July the 29th, 1957, the small dairy farming community of Bega was awoken to a massive bomb blast. This explosion was so powerful that it shattered over a hundred windows at the newly opened Bega Base Hospital that was nearly a kilometre away from the blast site. People rushed out of their homes in confusion and fear, many people initially thinking that the gas works had somehow blown up, but soon it became apparent that this explosion had happened at the other end of town. In the blink of an eye, an entire house in Girrowing Crescent had been reduced to matchsticks. This house had belonged to 31-year-old Constable Kenneth Cousins, his wife, 34-year-old Elizabeth, 9-year-old Roger, Elizabeth's first child from her first marriage, and Bruce James, Kenneth and Elizabeth's son, who was only seven months old at the time. As locals rushed from their homes towards the wreckage, they were stunned to see the magnitude of the damage. There was simply nothing left. Live wires sparked and twisted through the debris, clear and deadly in the smoke-filled night, and through the fading echoes of the blast, a child could be heard screaming. A neighbour, Kevin Barham, described it as, quote, I saw Roger staggering towards me, dressed only in his pyjama top. He was barefooted and crying and had dirt in his hair. He kept screaming, The house is ruined! The house is ruined! When Roger walked towards me, he was stepping through live wires brought down by the explosion. Roger had been sleeping in the back of the house while the explosion had occurred at the front, and as he walked out of the wreckage, he miraculously managed to miss all the live wires sparking at his feet before collapsing into Barnum's arms, completely physically unharmed. His family was not so lucky. The bodies of Elizabeth and Kenneth Cousins were found 45 metres away in a neighbour's garden, while the baby's body was not discovered until five hours later, behind a tree in another person's backyard. Investigation began immediately as the tiny town of Bega reeled from the explosion. At first it was suggested that perhaps it was a gas leak, or maybe Cousins had an unexploded bomb as a war souvenir, not something that was totally uncommon but it soon became apparent that this was no accident. A bomb had been deliberately placed on the cousin's porch with the intent of killing someone. Teams were called in from Sydney. The Homicide Squad, the Arson Squad, and explosive experts from both the New South Wales Mines Department and the Nowra Fleet Air Arm Base all soon arrived, all hypervigilant and determined to find the culprit. Because this wasn't just any old house that had been bombed, Kenneth Cousins was, after all, a police officer, and police will always defend their own. A week passed before a culprit was discovered, 32-year-old Myron Kelly. After a search of his property uncovered four and a half sticks of gelignite, 20 feet of safety fuse, and 58 detonators, Kelly quickly confessed. He said he'd planted the bomb early in the morning on the porch, right outside the main bedroom. The homemade device was incredibly simple. It was a six-gallon cream can, stolen from out the front of the Bega Cheese Factory and stuffed with 240 sticks of gelignite, stolen from a nearby quarry. Kelly was quickly convicted and sentenced to 25 to life. Now that's the official story. Unofficially, it's not nearly so cut and dry.
because this is one of those interesting tales where the official police line and what eyewitnesses say do not add up. Let's face it, it's pretty bad if six years after you're murdered, the locals still can't say anything nice about you. And it's rather telling that there wasn't even a memorial for the event until 2007, when on the 50th anniversary, a plaque was unveiled at the front of the Bega police station. And that was done at the behest of the New South Wales police, not the Bega community. And this is a town that has a memorial to the victims of the Columbine school shooting, because Columbine in Littleton is Bega's sister city. The police website basically says that Cousins was an upstanding member of the community who gave Kelly a ticket once, and this action so enraged Kelly that he decided to kill. This is a lie. The truth itself is not complicated, but it is messy, particularly if you're under the impression that all police officers are naturally good people. Kenneth Cousins was born in Hastings, England, and moved to Australia at a young age. He was a member of the Royal Australian Navy during World War II, then afterwards he joined the police in Sydney where he served in the safety bureau for eight years before being transferred to Bega where he was a constable for three. Now while it may be wrong to speak ill of the dead, those in Bega don't seem to have a problem when it comes to Kenneth Cousins. When I asked people who actually met him about the man, what he was like as a person and an officer, there were two reactions. Either they sighed, pressed their lips together and looked away, as if planning out their next sentences, or they just said what they thought without remorse. Either way, the results were the same. Cousins was not considered to be a good man. Many thought him to be rude and overzealous in his duties. One man said his aunt was pulled over by Cousins, and she found him to be, quote, extremely uncouth. She wasn't booked for anything, and never found out why he pulled her over in the first place. And what I find shocking is how many people compared him to the Gestapo. One woman said that, in her mind, he dressed like them, with big thumping boots and a small peaked hat, and all that mixed up with his attitude earned him the reputation around town as a hard man. What's interesting, however, is how much more compassionate the town seems to be towards Kelly. Myron Kelly was a Nimitabel native, though he was living in Bega at the time, working as a contractor. He had his own tractor and would go from farm to farm, a hand for hire whenever the work was good. He was described as a hard, honest worker who was trying to save up enough money for his own property. He was married to a New Zealand girl, had a few kids of his own, and was generally quiet, a little shy, and minded his own business. But the word that's used to describe him the most is simple. He was a simple person. One witness noted that if he'd been around these days, he'd probably be diagnosed with something. And if anybody knows small country towns, you'd know that being a little different can put a target on your back. Nobody knows why Cousins decided to target Kelly. To begin with, there were just a few traffic notices, after which Kelly got his tractor registered. Yes, he had an unregistered vehicle, but in the 1950s, it wasn't at all unusual. Kelly most certainly wasn't the only one with an unregistered car, yet he was the only one Cousins seemed to care about. The first major run-in was when Cousins pulled over Kelly and booked him, 
when he was travelling as a passenger in the back of a taxi. When asked what his offence was, Cousins claimed that Kelly had an unregistered motorbike before he then searched Kelly's home and fined him a total of £5 for various things. Later, at Myron Kelly's trial, he described the following event. I had been working on the riverbank below town. On my way home, I saw him on the corner of Auckland and Bega streets. I was driving a rotary hoe. He then followed me a fair way behind along Bega Street and up Gipps Street. Opposite the police station, he closed in and collided with the tractor. He then charged me with everything he could think of, although the accident was of his known neglect. I appeared before the bigger court and I was fined a total of 40 pounds. From these incidents on, we were bitter enemies. The official line is that Cousins just wanted to make sure that Kelly had his tractor registered, which he did. But that didn't stop Cousins from constantly pulling him over just to check and then to book him for something else entirely. On one occasion, he booked him for having mud on his license plate when he had just pulled out of the paddock before he'd even had a chance to clean it. One witness saw Cousins pull Kelly over one day and write him a ticket. Cousins then tailgated Kelly all the way down the street and proceeded to pull him up at the other end and book him for something else. He booked him for driving too fast, he booked him for driving too slow, and incredibly, he even booked him for jaywalking across George Street, Sydney, when he knew that Myron Kelly had never even been to Sydney. At this point, it's pretty clear that Cousins didn't care about the law. He just wanted Kelly to know that he was powerless, and when it came to Cousins' own opinion, Kelly would always be in the wrong. There were so many traffic offences against Kelly that Beaker Court stopped upholding them, but Cousins still pressed on with useless paperwork that went nowhere, but caused Kelly a great deal of distress and lost him income. As a hired hand, you only got paid for what you brought in, and if Kelly's days were caught up in fake traffic offences, then he couldn't work. After three years of this and with no end in sight, Kelly came to a deadly conclusion. It was premeditated, and at his hearing, Kelly described how he did it. About the middle of June this year, I went in my truck to Rock Flat and I took five cases of gelignite from there. A week before the tragedy, where Constable Cousins was killed, I stole a six-gallon milk can from the platform of the Bega Butter Factory. It had Curtis Brothers on the can. I took the labels off the can, dug up the gelignite, and made a bomb out of the milk can, and brought it back in my car to my home in Bega. That week, I fitted it up with about 20 feet of fuse and a detonator, and sealed it all up with mud. At midnight that night, I put the bomb in the back of my car and drove it to Auckland Street. I took it out of the car and I put it on the veranda of Constable Cousins' house near the front door. At about two o'clock in the morning, I walked up to Constable Cousins' house and lit the fuse on the bomb. After that, I went back to bed. Not being a strong container, I expected very little damage to be done and a lot of noise. I thought it would go no further than break some fibro off the walls and give the constable a bad fright, causing the police department to move him. I did not think it would kill him his wife and his child. It was the last thing in the world I wanted to happen. I have all the regrets in the world. Now this is where the town disagrees. 
As one man pointed out, he shoved 240 sticks of gelignite into that cream can, and while he might have been simple, he couldn't have been so stupid as to think that would just shake off a bit of fibro. However, they do believe that he didn't intend to kill Elizabeth and Bruce, because they weren't meant to be there. Now the next bit is word of mouth, but everybody in town agrees on the same thing. Only Cousins was supposed to be home that night. Elizabeth and her children were meant to be out of town, some say up at Cooma enjoying the snow season, and they had even left earlier that morning, but the weather was so bad that they had to turn back again. However, there's no doubt amongst the town that Kelly absolutely intended to kill Cousins, and that his excuse that he didn't know how powerful the blast would be was, quote, his lawyer putting words in his mouth. However, there is one witness who saw the bomb beforehand and who supports the theory that Kelly truly didn't know how big the explosion would be. Edward Williams was a farmer and a friend of Kelly's and had been shown the cream can containing the gelignite one week before the explosion. Kelly told him explicitly how he intended to put a burnt out fuse in it soon and to leave it out the front of Cousin's house to scare him. When questioned as to why Williams never reported this, he just said that he thought Kelly was joking. He was, after all, such a quiet, simple man. The court found him guilty, and he was sentenced to 25 to life in prison. 22 years later, in 1980, Myron Kelly was released and returned to the community. Now, if Kelly truly was a deranged madman prone to extreme acts of violence at the slightest provocation, why would he ever be released? What I find the most frustrating about this story is how Cousins, wife and child are mostly just reduced to that, his wife, his child. A lot of the modern news stories focus on Cousins while his family is just added on to compound the tragedy, rather than as real people. In another example of how Beager's view doesn't quite match up with the official story, on the 60th anniversary, while state newspapers leaned more towards Cousins, the Beager District News instead had a large picture of Elizabeth and her son, Roger. Born Elizabeth Gowing, but more commonly known as Betty around the town, she was a local big girl from a long-established, well-liked family. And considering Beaker is one of those tiny country towns with multi-generational drama, it's no small thing to be liked by all. During the Second World War, Elizabeth volunteered with the Red Cross, and it was through that work that she met McCampbell, an American businessman whom she married and moved to California with. They had one son, Roger, before that union was cut short by a drunk driver who crashed into a car that was carrying all three of them, killing McCampbell. Now both a young mother and a young widow, Elizabeth returned with her son to Bega, where she met and married Kenneth Cousins. She was a much-loved, kind and gentle soul, and in fact, to the people of Bega, she was Cousins' redeeming quality. As one woman put it, if she was with him, he can't have been all that bad. One of the people I spoke with lived next door to Elizabeth's brother and remembers when Roger came to stay for a while before moving back to the US to be with his father's side of the family. He would eventually return to Bega and live with his aunt. This neighbour instructed her boys not to talk to Roger about the bombing, but not all children were quiet on the subject. In an interview given years later, Roger recalled that once, at school, a boy had yelled out to him that 
My dad's happy, your dad's dead. I did find one person who had something nice to say about cousins. This man met him once when he was a teenager, who had gone with his friends to the police station to inquire about getting a driver's license. He recalled the cousins was a nice man, very affable, and that he'd given the teens a tour of the station. However, in the interest of transparency, it must be noted that this one witness later himself became a police officer, and was one for 32 years. It is always difficult to talk about corrupt police officers, as there are always so many people eager to viciously and violently defend them. But in a functioning society, everyone needs to be held accountable to one another, and to have a section of people who consider themselves to be divorced from that is dangerous, particularly when those people are armed. Cousins bullied Kelly for years, and no one said or did anything because... Who were you supposed to report that to? Those who report or record history have a duty to report the facts and not to fudge or hide things that might make you uncomfortable. The way the bombing is reported these days is laughable. It's said that a small section of the community didn't like cousins. No, it was the wider community. It's said that there were some in the community that thought that maybe cousins had it in for Kelly. Once again, no, everybody knew that cousins bullied Kelly. Kelly's harassment is brushed aside and instead he's painted as someone who received one traffic fine once and went nuts rather than someone that was continually harassed and given outlandish fines for no reason. But give it 60 years, don't report the facts, and you can get a whole generation to believe whatever you want them to. But those reporting need to remember this. There are those still living who witnessed it. And one of the most interesting witnesses made himself known on the 60th anniversary when a letter to the editor was written in by former police officer Jeff Kelly. No relation. In his own words, I listened to the police officer who spoke at the 60th anniversary of Constable Cousin's death held at the Bega Cemetery on Saturday, July the 29th. He said that this tragedy could befall any one of the serving police officers in attendance. I beg to differ with this sentiment. I would hope that the New South Wales Police internal investigation procedures are today more thorough than what they were 60 years ago. As such, any corrupt or inappropriate behaviour of an officer would not be tolerated and disciplinary action would be taken against this officer if it were deemed necessary. To put it simply, steps would have been taken before a desperate man resorted to an act of violence to put to the end years of continual harassment and fabricated traffic infringements meted out by the constable. To give you one example, Myron Kelly received an infringement notice from the constable for the heinous offence of jaywalking in George Street, Sydney, when he had never even been in Sydney. I have read comments on Facebook saying that the constable was only doing his job, but surely this is a blatant abuse of power by anyone's standards. A lesson can be learned from this tragic incident, that to be a police officer in a small country community takes a particular skill. You are not anonymous. You are part of the community that you serve, and you live in that community. You need to uphold the law, but you need to do so fairly to gain the respect of the community. I feel justified in making these statements. I was a serving police officer for 15 years, 12 of those in Bega, 
In all that time, I believe I treated everyone fairly and with respect, and never once did I have fears for my safety outside of working hours. We remember the tragic event of the night of July 29, 1957, where sadly three people unjustly lost their lives. It is a blight on the history pages of Bega. The untold events leading up to this tragedy are sadly a blight on the history of the New South Wales Police. What happened was dreadfully wrong and unforgivable, but to paint one person as a hero and the other as a villain is unfair. There are two sides to every story. There is a lesson to be learned from all this, and hopefully it will never happen again. Jeff Kelly, Bigger District News, August the 1st, 2017. There is a long list of police officers who have died while in service that can be easily accessed online and covers every officer's death from 1788 and details whether or not it was from falling from a horse or drowning while trying to cross a flooded creek. But if you go looking for the other side of the equation, if you're hoping to find a carefully maintained list of those who have died while in police custody, you'll be disappointed. There isn't one. Just cold numbers available from the Australian Bureau of Statistics that are not complete and not readily available to the public. You can't find a definitive number like you can with the police, but there is one interesting statistic from Victoria that when there is actually an internal investigation, 97% of the time nothing happens and the court rules in the favour of the police. There have been many, many more Myron Kellys. Yet Cousins remains the only police officer in Australian history to be targeted and murdered by a bomb blast. What happened on the 29th of July 1957 was a tragedy, and one that should have been avoided. Elizabeth, Bruce and Kenneth should not have died. Roger McCampbell should not have been orphaned three times over. Myron Kelly should not have been tormented by someone who was supposed to serve and protect. To distort and change these facts so that it's nothing more than a black and white morality tale is wrong, dishonest to those who lived it, and dangerous to future generations who refuse to learn from it. No one in Bega defends what Kelly did, but at the same time, they refuse to make a saint out of cousins. At the end of every interview, everyone agreed on the same thing. If it had just been cousins that had died, if Elizabeth and her boys had been fine, then no one in the town would have cared. One last thing. I know about this story because my dad's a bigger boy, born and bred. He was the first person to tell me this story when I was little, and was actually one of the first babies to be born in that brand new Bega Base hospital, which, four months later, saw its windows blasted out. The significance of this event was fresh throughout his childhood, and he remembers one particular consequence, which occurred years later. There was a new police officer in Bega, fresh from Sydney, with a rather familiar chip on his shoulder. He was not popular or liked, and many considered him to be brash, rude, zealous, and aggressive. But he was heedless of these complaints, and gave no sign of changing his behaviour. One morning, this officer awoke to discover that something had been left on his porch overnight. Sitting right in front of his door, 
completely harmless and utterly common throughout a dairy farming town, someone had left him an empty cream can. He applied for a transfer that morning and had left town by that afternoon. <laughs> 